Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 109 of the Mandolins of Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, the Mandolin Cafe. How's everybody doing? Happy Friday. Sorry, I'm just getting this to you. Um, Even I just actually had this conversation last night, and um, I haven't gotten a chance to edit it until this morning, and now it is done, and I'm uploading it in just a few moments. So I just want to let you know. Be sure to check that out. And since it's Friday, it's usually new release day, and Tristan Scroggins has a brand new album out. It's a tenor banjo album, and it's killer. I listened to it this morning on my walk, and man, that guy is so talented. So be sure to go and check that out. Uh, You'll really dig it. If you are in Michigan, just a reminder, November 12th and 13th, my bluegrass tribute to Tom Petty is going to be playing at the State Theater in Bay City, Michigan. It's a beautiful venue. And Otis Supply in Ferndale, which is a place where lots of uh, killer bluegrass bands, I believe the Traveling McCurries and the Sam Bush Band and the Henhouse Prowlers recently were there. So uh, if you are in the area for any of those, the tickets are now available for both shows. So go out and get your tickets today. Hopefully I'll see you at the uh, Michigan shows. Hoping to do those kind of all over the place. This will be, be interesting to see how this works out. Hey, Straight Up Strings is back as a sponsor, everybody. Couldn't be more ecstatic. I got an email from Roger just the other day, and Straight Up Strings is back. If you're not familiar with them, you have to really go to the website, to be honest with you, because they put so much work into trying to develop the best-sounding strings that you can get, and there's so much incredible science behind it. I would sound ridiculous trying to uh, trying to even let you know. But the key that they were going for is balance. And there are some of the most balanced sounding strings out there. So I really recommend going to straightupstrings.com and checking them out. And they also, they give you a deal. If you buy a six pack, you save $9.75. That's, a, that's like getting a pack for free. So go out and do it. I mean, Tristan Scroggins, CJ Lewandowski, they play these strings and there's a reason why they do. Those guys sound incredible. You could sound incredible as well. Go to straightupstrings.com. Thank you so much to Roger for sponsoring this episode. Also, thank you to Ear Trumpet Labs for sponsoring this week. Ear Trumpet Labs, who are celebrating 10 years of hand-building microphones in Portland, Oregon. Their mics are beautifully designed. They have great feedback rejection for live use and the most natural tone you'll find for acoustic instruments, whether for a single source like mandolin or single micing a full string band. Check them out at eartrumpetlabs.com today. Be sure to follow them on Instagram. Their Instagram feed is always filled with cool stuff and the cool, uh, the cool musicians that actually use those instruments. And I think it always says a lot when you go see a band live and uh, an Ear Trumpet Lab microphone is on the stage. That really says it all there. Peghead Nation. Peghead Nation's got the best streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. You can learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots Music. Who you ask? How about Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Feibish, and Chad Manning? That's who. That's everything from the beginner to the advanced. You can get it all there. Courses are high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. Join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now. Get your first month for free. Just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word, at checkout. Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com. Download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. Also, their Instagram is incredible. So be sure and go and check that out. 
Pavo mandolins dedicated to building for the impassioned player. They're built in Austin, Texas, and they do a beautiful job. Pavo mandolins. And I highly recommend when you see one come up for sale, you might want to get it. They sell fast. I can't even tell you how many times I've clicked on a link on the uh, Mandolin Cafe when a store posts it for sale, and then you go to the store and it is already sold, and there's a reason why. They sound incredible. So thank you so much to all my sponsors. Thank you so much to all my listeners. I really, truly appreciate you all tuning in every week and listening. If you get a chance, please go to mandolinsandbeer.com and sign up on my mailing list. It'll pop right up when you go to it. Please follow me on Instagram and the face space and all that other social media stuff. Actually, that's the only other ones I'm on. Let's get into this episode with Eva Holbrook. Eva's super talented. She's got a cool background and... um. Again, if you don't follow her on Instagram already, Lady Moon Cries is her Instagram handle, and it is just, it's got some incredible stuff. I mean, if you can get Chris Thiele to a comment, whoa, in all caps, you're doing something right. So if you're not familiar with her, check her out. And uh, we're going to check it out with this conversation right now. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. Cheers. We're off to never, never love. Well, it's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Eva Holbrook. Eva, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Daniel? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. So, uh, so exciting to talk to you. Um, your your Instagram uh, feed has been a source of entertainment for years. You're just, <laughs> it's so good. And we were talking a little bit before this, but you, you've really tapped in to the... Um, to, to your audience, I mean, it, what you're doing is is so fantastic and so well received. It's really inspiring to see. Oh, thanks. I think you probably discovered this too, but mandolin is like a beautiful niche. You yes. know, you you just open up your arms and like you have all these friends all of a sudden, and people are always looking for tips and ways to improve, and they're always looking for inspiration, like I am. You know, so I. It's a wonderful community in that way, and I'm really just honored to be on your podcast as well. Oh, man. I mean, thanks for thinking of me. Oh, absolutely. And, and and you're so right. I mean, that's why I started this podcast was I was looking for inspiration because suddenly I had all this time to play mandolin, and I, I'm like, well, I wonder if I can talk to some of these people who's playing I love and inspires me and kind of pick their brains and it turns out a whole lot of other people like to uh, <laughs> like to listen to that as well. So, um Dang. Yeah, it's crazy. That is so cool. It really is. It's I, it's mind-blowing. I feel like that's the name of the game in life. You know, if you really want to learn how to do something, you just go go find yourself a mentor or go don't be afraid to like ask folks. Because most people in my experience who are passionate about something are also passionate about, you know, sharing yeah. the things that they they've learned and they love and it's cool. In this community especially, this acoustic music yeah. world. It's it's unbelievable the amount of like graciousness like you like Sam Bush. I mean, when you go back and look at those videos when he had Sierra Hall playing on on Wood songs, you know, like it's oh. just, I mean, that's just that's just the type of stuff that goes on at festivals and shows all over the place in this in this genre, you know? Yeah, so, it is like a warm community. Yeah, super, super lucky to be part of it and super lucky to have people like you do the podcast because, you know, if I didn't have 
players like like yourself and everybody else who's been on here, I, I, w- I would have zero listeners. So I'm very appreciative. Well, I'm just, I'm stoked to be here and I really enjoyed getting to talk to you beforehand and just hear about your own success. That's inspiring. To oh me. man. And I did, it actually made, like brought up a question. Like if you're doing 300 shows a year, when you're in that season, like as a performer, how do you keep from burning out? Um, I just, well, one of the super things I'm lucky with is the guy that I play music with, my buddy Wit. Um, we've both played so many gigs together now that I can listen to a song or hear a song um, on my phone or on the radio on the way to the gig. And if I'm familiar enough with it, I can pull it up or I could write a song. I could write a song tomorrow morning and play it with him tomorrow night just by showing him the changes. So every gig is literally, we have like certain songs we know work and that we always play. Uh, We have our own songs that we do. Um, But I mean, now we have like a catalog of just hundreds of tunes and and, and and I mean, there's some we've played one time and I'm just been like, bah, next, <laughs> you know. <laughs> wow, so, that's like a level of proficiency that's so impressive to me. I love that. Yeah. So, yeah. So that that helps. And, and then also playing with people who, again, inspire you and that you can get along with and, you know. Oh, yeah. Makes that makes it easy. So, yeah, that's a good. Thanks. Thanks for asking that. It's a, it's a good question. I wonder it myself sometimes, but I think I just answered it. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's amazing to me. I think, you know, performing live, uh, when I used to do it, I actually haven't really done it since COVID. Um, you know, that that was one of the most fatiguing aspects. Yeah, I think part of it was the travel and everything, you know, but I'm I'm just I'm I'm quite impressed by that. We um we did learn we've been doing these Tom Petty bluegrass tributes. And we've been playing some venues, like cool venues, and we've been opening for ourselves. We found it's exhausting. Like, so from here on out, we're going to, yeah, we're going to open, we're going to have openers because like, you know, you're trying to get everybody hyped up and then, then you you take a break and then you come back out and it's kind of like, here we are again, doing, (laughs) doing what you came to see. (laughs) So we're going to, yeah, you know, it's, uh, we we learned that the hard way. (laughs) Man, that's. Uh, that's intense that's so cool though so that, you know it just it just to be just to be traveling and doing something you love like that i really i really admire that no thanks well you've been doing it i mean you've been doing it for a while i mean i remember seeing your video for tuscany it has to be oh my gosh 10 years ago would that be would that fall into the yeah. time frame yeah i bet that is it's probably a decade since we made that video it's crazy It's just like oh thanks yeah it was one of those things where like oh i need to i need to practice <laughs> oh <laughs> I, need to, I mean i just watched it again tonight and I'm like, yeah i still i still need to practice <laughs> man i feel like a hack these days i just spending so much time like working on recording and trying to you know wear that hat well uh i feel like i don't pick up my mandolin as much as i used to well you're recording a new album uh currently yeah 
Let's talk yeah. a little bit before we dig into your past. Let's talk about the the present <laughs> right now. Um, you, you're working on it's it, it's Lady Moon Cries is the project. Yeah. Thing. Well, the project's just Lady Moon, but Lady Moon. I'm um, sorry. Yeah, you told. Hang on, let me do that again. Oh no. Yeah. The, it's <laughs> called Lady Moon. <laughs> Lady Moon, not Lady Moon Cries. Lady Moon Cries is your Instagram. Yes. Okay. Yes. So Lady Moon, and you're working on that currently at home. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'd kind of had this vision for a project where I could actually explore more traditional Irish and English folk music, um, and I thought I wouldn't be doing it for a few more years, you know, just because we'd be touring with the band. And then when uh, COVID hit, you know, it was like I was like, oh, I can do this now, and I really sank into it in a very natural way. I think uh, probably because I am a bit, I, I'm quite a homebody. Which even was maybe a little hard to admit to myself that like I really really like being home, um, and that also I you know I really liked feeling a part of a tradition and part of something that felt like a part of me. Uh, that that really fed my my soul in a way that I didn't even know I needed, uh, and I think resting you know during that time and not traveling and not going through all the stress and anxiety. Um, I have a lot of anxiety when I perform on stage and I, you know, it's one of those things you just kind of get used to and you don't even realize like how intense it is until you're not putting your body through that constantly. And, uh, some combination of like that resting and that being able to dig in deeper to things that's really, uh, really loved. I, I feel like this, this project just kind of blossomed naturally. I have to give my, my husband a great deal of credit for that because, you know, he was the first person in my life who really said, you know, it seems like there's this music you love that I never really hear you, like, explore, and that makes me sad. I feel like I'm missing a part of you. Um, and, uh, you know, even that was a bit hard to hear. I was like, you're right. I just don't know how to, I don't know how to make that shift. You know, when you're making your living doing something, it's really challenging to, like, set that aside and say, okay, well, I'm, I'm actually going to, like, step out and pursue the thing that I'm excited or passionate about, um, at the risk of like losing all income. So when COVID hit and I lost all income, you know, there, <laughs> <laughs> there was kind of nothing to lose at that point. And I think that made it easy as well. Are you playing all the instruments? I am. Cool. Yeah. Are they solo recordings or are they going to be like multiple instruments kind of layered in and, and mixed together? They're multiple instruments. So... I'm, yeah, I've, I got really, really into Nick Jones. started probably like March 2020 and he's got this great tuning he does on guitar it's B flat F B flat F B flat C oh wow and um yeah it's quite low and but I I don't really know you know I've never studied guitar I don't really understand guitar at all I wouldn't even say I really understand mandolin but I really don't understand guitar when you throw those two extra strings in there it's it's 
it's but for me it's like wandering out into the woods and being like okay there's no path here that's kind of exciting so i you know i can pick it up and and find something that is pleasing to me and you know i left this, i i left like a publishing deal and a label deal and all of that so that i could have that freedom you know to wander so to speak in the woods and not have somebody like breathing down my neck and um you know, sort of exploring whether or not they felt it was commercially viable, but just being able to say, you know, it's sufficient that I love it. And, um, you know, I have faith that there are people out there who will love it. I don't think it's going to be like, you know, a massive, this massive audience, but that's not really what I want. Like, I don't, (laughs) I kind of can't imagine that. (laughs) You know, though, that's kind of, it's what I've been kind, kind of finding with um with doing these interviews and and even with myself is like after a while that whole i mean that massive audience thing when you're a musician is always kind of in the back of your mind right like it's always like you know you see a cold play video or whatever and you're like wow <laughs> you know but then when you start to realize like just making a living is pretty yeah. pretty rewarding and and finding anybody getting an email from someone saying they enjoy what you do I mean, that's, that stuff yeah. kind of feeds the soul, like not to be, yeah. you know, goofy about it, but it really does. I mean, it's just like, it's, it's, it's amazing. Think, I don't think it's goofy at all. I think the other way is goofy. Like I really sat and thought about it one day and I was like, what is the magic of music? And I was like, it's for me anyway, it's the tradition and it's the sense of community. And really it's kind of like the difference, you know, like if you step into a church, for instance, and there's like this massive PA system and they're playing like worship songs so loud, you can't hear the congregation versus like going to a small little church where everybody's singing hymns and you're really just like singing together, like the singing together thing, uh, you know, or, or making music so people can dance. Like that to me, that's the point of music. Like the whole concept of like being on a huge stage and like big bright lights and all of that business, like it's really, that that seems so bizarre to me. That's like a new tradition almost. Like it's like the tradition of David Bowie, you know, um, like I I don't know, it's that it's not something, I'm not, I don't mean to, to speak badly about it. It's just not something that I connect with. And it there's a weird thing of like, kind of being raised in a family of entertainers where there was a lot of emphasis on becoming an entertainer, you know, and like a lot of emphasis on being successful as an entertainer. I think eventually you just lose the whole point um, when you focus too much on that because I think inevitably it becomes about status and power and it doesn't become about community. Um, But I would say, you know, the ancient tradition of music is all about community. So for me, like, I don't know, I think it, and even maybe part of that is fueled by when you're working in the industry and you have people who really, their definition of success is something I wouldn't consider healthy. You know, a lot of times it's just about your social media numbers or it's your album sales or whatever. And it's not often a conversation about the craft or or even your health as an artist, like it can become exploitive so easily. And I, I'm bummed about that. <laughs> when you get to that level, it's almost more about how much money can you make them? Yes. As opposed to yeah. how can I, how can I, 
how can I make what you want to do a reality? It's about how can I take what you want to do and make a bunch of money? Right. <laughs> is what it seems to be like at, a, at that level. And even stranger is like the idea of, you know, like I and I totally acknowledge like publishing, production, every aspect of the industry is an, is an art. And there are people who are passionate about that. And I fully appreciate it. But I think there comes a point where also if they're not creating something, you know, if they don't feel at liberty to go home and like play the piano, sing their their hearts out or do some form of self-expression uh, for themselves, you know, just to express what's inside of them. Mm-hmm. Like, I think there's this scary thing that happens where they try to create through the artist and they try to live vicariously. Uh, and I, I think that's not a healthy thing, you know. I wish often that... Uh, and, and I think sometimes even the industry creates this idea that like, oh, there are those who are chosen to create and they're just very special and we're not those. And I, I think that's all wrong, too. I think like the whole point of creating, it is just to get what's inside out, you know, and, and it's to connect. And so I've, I've really stepping outside of it. I've had some time to think about that and think about like what music means to me and like how I, I, I how I kind of wish, you know, there was some way to to do it differently within the industry, but I don't think there is for me, not in a way that would ever feel right. Well, let's talk about how you got into music because you, you you mentioned the the family. You have a musical family. I mean, Shell. a family band with a you know made up from the the names of you guys how did how did you get into to mandolin i guess most specifically and and let me point out by the way that you are obviously a killer mandolin player and that's why we're talking about this but your voice is amazing you have an amazing singing voice (laughs) it was yeah we were listening to you at dinner uh, tonight, my wife was just like, oh my. <laughs> so if people need to go wow. out and listen to this stuff, we're going to talk a lot of mandolin, but I, I, I'd feel bad if I didn't talk about how uh, incredible of a singing voice you had. So, so well, thank you so much. Yeah. That's really sweet. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. So yeah, so how did you find yourself playing a mandolin? So when I was a kid, um, I tried to play guitar, actually. My dad had a little guitar and it just didn't work out. Um, but he was working at a music shop at the time, and there was like a little black Kentucky mandolin on the wall. And we would go and visit him at the music shop sometimes. And um, I just remember going in this one day and seeing that thing. And he was like, this is a really good price. You know, I'll, I'll buy it if somebody would learn it. And I already was a quitter, you know, at that point. So <laughs> my track record was bad. Um, but I... <laughs> I raised my hand, you know, like little 10 year old me looked at that thing and was like, that is beautiful and shiny and it could be mine. And, uh, yeah, I raised my hand and, and dad like literally went through all the other children, um, who did not raise their hand by the way. And were not even remotely interested in and Liza, <laughs> what about you? Hannah, what about you? Probably cause I was a quitter. And, um, you know, he, I said, I, dad, I, you know, I want it. And he said, all right, I'll, I'll get it, but you're going to have to practice. And, um, you know, I, 
I I don't know. I thought I guess I thought practicing would be worth it just to have something that that pretty for myself. <laughs> right. uh, <laughs> I came from a big family. It, you know that we were very like uh, what's the word? Not necessarily territorial, but it was hard to have things that were nice that were your own. So, <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah. That's how this all started was I, I coveted that. <laughs> I coveted that hope. Oh, that's so great. I remember he brought it home, you know, a few weeks later and um, he opened up the case and there was a key and my older sister asked why there was a key. And he was like, oh, you know, so someday when Eva like travels on an airplane, you know, she can lock it. Um, which I guess must have been a thing back then. Uh, I'd never been on an airplane in my life, and this I looked at this little thing, and I was like, wait, this little thing could, like, get me on an airplane? Okay, I like this even more, you know? And um, so I, I got it, and my dad sort of tried to teach me, and that always ended in tears. Uh, there was some combination of a lack of patience on both sides. <laughs> sure. Uh, and, and, but he's a very, you know, he's a very wise man, and, and he found me a teacher. And, my you know, both my parents... Really, uh, are amazing artists and they came from households where that wasn't appreciated or supported and so when they had kids they were very very adamant about any like artistic interest or like I remember my oldest sister was really interested in becoming a vet and so they got a sheep you know and they put her in 4-H and like anything they could do to support the interests like wow that's great and and I mean they were extremely poor so I, I don't even know how they did it but they made it happen and so this was another instance where, you know, he saw that little light go off and he and he really wanted to, you know, kind of fuel that. So he got me a teacher. I had a wonderful teacher. Her name was Ellen Audley. And she was in a band called the Mother Folkers, uh, <laughs> the most carefully pronounced name in, in the music business. Uh, but she, she was an incredible teacher. And... Um, but I remember, you know, I, I went to my first lesson and she had written out for me, uh, found harmonium. Uh, oh, that's not what it's called though. That was what was written on there, but I looked it up and that's not actually the title of the piece. It's something for a found harmonium, but it's a really beautiful, really beautiful piece. And, um, I, you know, I got this piece home and I sat with it and I like tried to practice, lost interest, walked away. And so my second lesson came up and my dad was like, well, did you practice? You know, I was like, no, dad, I want to quit. Oh. And, <laughs> you know, I don't even know what was going through his head at that point, but he was like, well, you've got a lesson today, so you need to practice anyway. And I went in there and I was like uh, looking at this piece of music and I was able to play like just a couple bars of it, you know, um, just a, just a couple measures. And uh, something clicked in that moment. Like, I thought, oh, that, I actually like this. Like, this is pretty. Like, the melody I was playing was pretty, and I was playing it, you know. Um, it was a little, a, a moment. And um, I went to my lesson, and, you know, I, I actually did pretty well, considering I hadn't practiced. And uh, I remember Ellen said something like, well, let's see what you can do when you actually practice. And that that kind of put like a, you know, a fire in me. So I, I started practicing and a couple months later we went to a fiddle competition and I placed last, you know, and, and I remember seeing that and, and, you know, kind of feeling like a sense of, of sadness or shame. And, um, I went back to a different fiddle competition, uh, about a year later and placed first. Oh, wow. And I think the difference was, you know, at, 
at around that time, my dad got me this book. And, you know, especially at that age, you really just like, I, I really love my dad and I really loved him when I was a 10 year old, you know, I just wanted him to be proud of me. And I would say that's probably, you know, most of what fueled even wanting to play the instrument and, and be great at it. Although I, you know, I started the joy increased as the proficiency increased, which I think is real natural. Um, but he got me this book for my birthday and it was, it was one of Chris Thiele's books and it took me a whole year to like learn this piece out of it. Which tune? I can't remember the name of it. And, and I can see the, the like cover of the book. It was when he was real young. Like he, he was maybe like 12 or 13. Was it steal, stealing second? Was it like that blue cover or was it that green no, it one leading off? The green one. Yeah. Yeah. It's leading off. Yeah. Yeah. You would know because the baseball terms. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, he, yeah, there was a, a piece in there that I learned. And very painstakingly, and not with the right fingering or the right pick strokes or anything of that nature. But, um, you know, I, I just felt a sense of pride in learning it. And that, you know, that was, that was the beginning. That was a really long story, Daniel. But that no, was the, that's great. This is, <laughs> that was this the is what this is about. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. And so, yeah. um, where did you grow up? What's, what state? Yeah, so I grew up in Colorado. Oh, okay. Um, so you're... Colorado and in Colorado currently as well. Yeah, I love it here. Yeah, yeah, I do. I love it there as well. It's just beautiful. I wish I get there more often. So yeah, come visit. I would love to. We're just in Loveland. Yeah, man, I would. Uh, I would love to do that. You might be see me sooner rather than later. Um, <laughs> trying to book some stuff here. So. Um, oh, that'd be great. So then, so were you listening to Thiele Then was that kind of. What type of music were you listening to? Was it bluegrass? Were you, you know, did you start like listening to a bunch of mandolin music? You know, it was such a funny thing. Like I had Strength in Numbers, which is still one of my all-time favorite albums. beautiful and that just really it's funny because as a kid like I couldn't even distinguish the mandolin in that uh you know from uh from any other instrument which is really (laughs) funny looking back uh but I just loved it I loved how it all came together and the emotion that it created inside of me and the the things I saw in my head when I listened to that music and then um I was listening to a lot of Nickel Creek uh but my dad um was very, very much into classic rock. So a lot of Led Zeppelin, a lot of the Beatles. And I think my love for that really didn't develop until I was like 15 or so. But there was, when Chris Thiele made that record, um, Not All Who Wonder Are Lost. Oh, yeah. I, that, I, like, my mom bought a copy for her car and I had a copy for my little boombox. And like, I blew out my copy like I it it wouldn't play anymore because I just played it so much like I it was the first I think let's see gosh I was maybe 12 at that time 
and I read Lord of the Rings for the first time, and it was like the soundtrack for reading Lord of the Rings. So I'd like read the book and listen to that CD, and then I'd just like play it over and over again. And then I would go like, I had one of those little portable CD players, and we lived out on a farm, so I would like dress up in, in like, you know, a cloak, and I had like a wooden sword and stuff. And I would put like my little CD on there and I'd put my headphones on and I'd go run out in the field and like listen to it and, you know, <laughs> chop at fence posts or something. Oh, this is so great. <laughs> it was really funny. And so when I burnt my CD out, you know, my mom gave me hers and I don't know, that that had a big impact. It was a pretty pivotal time where like there's a lot of hard things that were happening in my little in my little, you know, life. And I feel like that CD and Lord of the Rings both got me through that time, and I was I knew I was going to be all right. Um, and Ellen actually helped me learn "Song for a Young Queen," which is the first track on there. made me like I think because of the cross picking in there that was when I was like I think I could write something on mandolin um and I had you know like uh some Bach transcription that Mel Bay put out for mandolin um and I was learning that and I was learning some Vivaldi and I was listening to French romantic music and some culmination of all of that like I think this by the time I was like 15 or 16 that produced Tuscany like I I just kind of locked myself in that summer we'd, we'd spent like helping dad build a wine cellar underground and the acoustics in there were really wonderful. So I would go down there and, and just play and I ended up writing that piece down there. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. So that, that was, uh, that was really just, I don't know what I, I listened to was at, at that point was just a lot of classical music and and then that one Chris Thiele <laughs> you know it's great though is the Thiele the Tolkien and the Zeppelin all kind of tied themselves right in together yeah, Zeppelin uh, was right? all into that, that Tolkien sort of uh sort of stuff and yeah your, your version of Battle of Evermore is killer So I loves I love Led Zeppelin. I grew up a drummer, oh, yeah. so like John Bonham was like <laughs> like still if, if it's like I'm like Pavlov's dog. If like if Zeppelin comes on the radio, I'm like I gotta play drums. <laughs> like where's the, where's so the drum cool. set? <laughs> so at this point, were you learning? Were you reading uh, notation? Man, I've always been so bad at reading music, and like full disclosure, when I look at a mandolin, like. I can't tell you what notes I'm looking at. And that's always been something I felt like a great deal of shame about, especially as a younger mandolinist. Because uh, the world, I don't know if you know this, Daniel, 
Um, the world is full of extremely talented and proficient young mandolinists, and I like have the utmost respect for them. Uh, you know, Sierra, Dominique, Sarah. Like, I just watch them play, and I'm like, oh my gosh! Like, that is something I will never be able to do. But I, I kind of, when I got older, I was able to accept that. But yeah, I know. So like, the the closest actually I am to reading music was I studied cello for a couple years with a great professor at CSU, Barbara Thiem. And she was the first person who really taught me how to read music. Um, and, you know, just taking one element at a time, taking one measure at a time. And I've, I've, so I can read music now if I have to, mm-hmm. but it's kind of like pulling teeth. But, I, but I, I feel like at least I know how to do it. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, because I remember seeing, I think when you did the Mandolin Mondays and you did that, um, the Monaghan Jig, I believe it was. Yes. In um, yeah. there was a thing in there where it mentioned that you had been going through that Maguire's or O'Neill's O'Neill's music of yeah. Ireland. Yeah. And so I yeah. didn't know if that was like you were just like, yeah, I just sight read this amazingly and just learn all these songs because it, to me it's like I'm the same <laughs> way. Like I could play mandolin all day, but you put that book in front of me like, hey, can you play this? I'd be like, ooh. <laughs> I mean, I could play it tomorrow. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, same. Okay, Story good. Story my yeah. life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so did you go to school then for music at all? Like you, you mentioned CSU. No, you know, the funny thing is I was homeschooled. So like till I was 16 and then I went to the community college for a semester and I'd never been in a classroom before, but I went in there and I really tried. Like it, it was a big deal, especially to my mom's side of the family to go to college. And I, I didn't want to be a disappointment. So, you know, I gave it my best. And um, literally, like, after one semester, I tried so, so hard, and I, I spent all my time studying, and I, like, barely made it out with Bs. And when the semester was over, I forgot everything I learned, and I just thought, this isn't for me. Like, I, whatever I need to learn, I'm going to learn another way, like, through application or something, some way where I can retain it and actually put it to practical use. So I dropped out, and... Um, and it was it was a big conversation, especially with my grandparents, where I was kind of telling them, like, you know, I, w- I really want to play music professionally. And, you know, God bless my grandmother. She's the sweetest human. But she was like, you sound like one of those damn hippies. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I just like I felt so ashamed. But I was like, but I can't help it. Like, I know that I know I could do more with my life if I didn't go to school. So I, um, you know, I kind of. I had, but I had this great moment with my oldest sister, who is like so smart. She's a she's a biology professor, and she has her PhD in plant pathology. And she had like a full ride scholarship to Cornell University, and I I really looked up to her, and I still do, you know. But I, at that point, particularly when I was sixteen, I really cared what she thought, and that you know she didn't think I was wasting my life. And so I'd written a song. It's like the first song I ever wrote where I sang. And, um, you know, I, I played it for her and she was like, if you made an album of that, I would buy it. And this like light went off and I was like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make an album. I will not be, you know, a waste of, of space and time. Like, even though I dropped out of college, I'm, I'm going to figure out how to make myself an album. Oh, wow. So I, I, <laughs> I got my sister Sarah to help me, you know, she helps, uh, like she's always been so much more tech savvy than I am. She helped me figure out how to work, like, the equipment, and my dad did, too, and uh, she helped me record, like, a little record. Oh, is that a record available anywhere? <laughs> I've seen it on eBay before. Oh, no way, um, really? But it's, it's not out there on, like, iTunes or YouTube or anything like that. You know, I I found it on YouTube. Oh, um, oh there we it's go. It's called, 
It's called The Very Last Dream, but it's really embarrassing uh, listening back now, as most, you know, projects of that nature are, but I had so much fun doing that. Yeah, well, um, that's what, that's the thing you got, you know, you, you got to grow. That's you, you're <laughs> obviously you're going to listen to it, but you had fun doing it. And that's, that's yeah. the beautiful part. When you did that semester of school, was it for music or were you, did you actually, were you thinking of something else at that point? No, it was literally like prerequisites. Oh, okay, like, cool. Uh, gotcha. Because I, you know, the funny thing about being homeschooled, like I don't have a high school diploma or anything like that. So mm-hmm. um, what we would do is we would go to community college and then you could transfer from there to like CSU. So you could go to a normal university and um, yeah, it just didn't, <laughs> I didn't make it that far. Yeah. Well, so fortunately, was, fortunately yeah, was, for us, you know, uh, for, for the <laughs> listeners. Well, you know, it was funny cause I, when I decided I wanted to learn cello, I really wanted to like, I really wanted to learn it. And I, I felt like there was no point if I didn't learn from somebody who was like a master who'd really teach good left and right hand technique. And so I reached out to Barbara, and I, I just kind of have always felt this way. I'm like, you know what? You can find what you need if if you just are willing to ask people. And I had been taken from some of her students, and I just felt like um, I was really disappointed with how they were addressing left and right hand techniques. So I went to her, and I, I told her that, and I said, you know, I'd really like to learn from you. And she's like, well, I'll give you a trial, you know, and if you'll practice, you know, we, <laughs> I'll keep you. And I'd been through that before, so I was like, I, not. <laughs> I can do that. So, you know, she, she kept me for two years, but that was at the same time, like, the band signed a record deal and we were touring all the time. So whenever I could, I would be, like, hauling this cello around, and then in the hotel room, you know, I'd try to kick everybody out so I could practice. Um, but it ended up not, you know, not being meant to be. But oddly enough, like, I learned so much from that that, like, transferred to octave mandolin, um, including like the Bach cello suites, like the first movement. I used to know the second movement, but I just, you know, it tra- I, I just <laughs> moved it right over to octave mandolin. Oh, that's cello, awesome. Which was yeah. wonderful. Yeah, no doubt. Man, that's great. So the, so then at this point, you, you, you get a record deal. So obviously you're playing. Um, when did you start? And was it always shell? Was that kind of like the thing? Like the family band and just saying we can we can do this. Everybody here is super super talented, <laughs> you know. Well, it was funny because at the same time we we were doing shell professionally, which was like playing coffee shops and churches. I had started my own project and I was doing that simultaneously. And there was a lot of overlap. Like when I did my CD release concert, you know, I brought the whole family up to play with me on a couple songs. And um, but I felt like, you know, when we were doing the family band, we were doing dad's songs and we were kind of like, cause that's how it all started. My dad's a singer songwriter. And, um, as he like got, you know, lessons for everybody in their respective instruments and they became proficient, we would get up on stage and like back him up kind of like one at a time until he had his own little band. <laughs> um, and, and it was really fun, you know, uh, but then we started to write and I started to write, uh, and so sometimes we would arrange some of my songs in shells. Sometimes I'd do them by myself in my own act. And um, there kind of came this funny crossroads where, like, literally, I was following this wonderful producer, uh, Charlie Peacock, on Instagram. Because at that, at that point in time, like, one of my favorite bands in the world was Switchfoot. Oh, and, yeah. Um, yeah. I, went and, I went and saw one of their concerts, and um, he said something about, like, somebody had asked him, like, what was what was it it wasn't a proper concert it was like an interview and a concert and it was happening at csu 
And somebody asked him, like, how, you know, what his story was. And he said, oh, well, I was really fortunate. Like, I met this producer named Charlie Peacock. And I had my journal with me, and I made a little note. And so I went and found him on MySpace, and I just reached out to him, and I was like, hey, you know, like, how do you have a career in music, basically? (laughs) I don't remember what I asked, but he was so sweet. He wrote me back, and and he listened to my stuff on MySpace, you know, and we kind of kept up this correspondence of him, like, giving me just great advice, Um, advice I still look back on now, and I'm like, man, he really knew what he was talking about, and um, I... It, I, like one of the things I remember was just that he said, you know, great music is a result of great conversation and that should be a, a staple in your life, something along those lines. And I've never, I feel like there actually was a time in my career where I forgot that and I was just working all the time and I wasn't making time for great conversation and experience and my writing really suffered as a result. But, you know, we kept up a correspondence for a year and then he ended up inviting me to go to Nashville and he put together like, Cause I couldn't, I'd never been on an airplane before, you know, and, um, my, like my family couldn't afford to pay for a hotel. So he put together like a scholarship to pay for my airplane ticket and to pay for a hotel, um, which was so sweet, like just beyond. And he invited me to come to this conference. Um, so the day before I flew out to do that, we used to do these like summer tours in Kansas and Nebraska, and we would go and play like, you know, little gelato shops and things like that. And literally at at this gelato shop called Honker Beans, there was a gentleman there named Kenton Higgins. And I think there were like five people there when we played. And um, this gentleman was like, hey, I know this, you know, radio guy named John St. John in Denver. Um, I'd really like to connect you guys. So when we went back home, we connected with this guy. And he was like, hey, I know this producer in Nashville. I'd really like to connect you guys. He has a home, like a summer home here. And a couple weeks later, that happened, um, and we met a gentleman named Brent Mayer. And literally, we we did what we didn't really know was an audition in our living room for Brent Mayer um, the day before I flew out to go meet Charlie Peacock and do what I didn't know was an audition at this retreat. And he hosted an open mic and like had me come up and play, and then at the end of the retreat, he said, I'd really like to work with you. Um, so as a band, you know, we had played for Brent, and as a solo artist, I had played for Charlie, and we ended up getting, in, in the same like couple of days, offers from both of them to do an artist development deal. Uh, it was it, like literally so bizarre. And I was over the moon, because I, you know, I really loved Charlie, I was looking forward to working with him. And um, the, so this crux kind of happened, where I told Charlie, like, hey, there's this producer who wants to work with my band, can I do both? And Charlie was like, absolutely. And then um, my dad was the one talking to Brent, and then uh, dad told me, you know, he's like, hey, Brent, Brent's actually not okay with that. He wants to call you. And uh, so I, I talked to Brent, and he said, you know, I have this really big vision for your band. I think you guys could be very successful, and but it would be an exclusive, like, publishing deal, and, and you can't, like, you can't be working with anybody else. And, I, you know, I was kind of crushed. Like, I... I loved doing Shell, but I really loved like doing my own thing. And at that point, you know, Hannah and Sarah were both going to college. And so if we were going to take this offer from Brent, like they would have to drop out of college. I would have to not work with Charlie. And we all sort of had a, a conversation about it and decided that that was what we were going to do. Um, so I, you know, I, I, it was real sad. I, you know, I told Charlie, thank you very much, but I'm, I'm going to go work with somebody else.
How old were you when you had to have that conversation? So let's see. At that point, I would have been 19, I think. It's a pretty heavy conversation to have as a (laughs) 19-year-old. Yeah, (laughs) I'm sure I didn't. I'm sure I didn't even do it right, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't know that I would be able to do it right now. I mean, that's just, that's a tough one to, you know, and but also exciting at the same time. I mean, because you have, you're like, wow, I, all this, all this work that I put into this is starting to pay off and like people, the people are paying attention, you know? Yeah, it was, it was bizarre. Like all I can do is look back on that time of life and think it was really bizarre um, and it, I, we got so much incredible experience from working with Brent, um, you know, and, and like literally, I think five or six months after we signed this artist development deal with them, we signed like a record deal with Scott Borchette at Big Machine. And that was like a whole other realm, like nothing ever felt real. That's all I remember. Cause we didn't understand what anything meant. Like we were still trying to understand what a producer was and what they did and what an artist <laughs> development deal meant and what a publisher did and what what is a publicist and what is the difference you know like uh, what do label heads really do like it's it was very it was like being thrown in you know really kind of head first wow. um, but we learned a lot for sure oh I, yeah I can't imagine and and all this time you're Still playing mandolin. What type of like what what were the influences <laughs> then at this point? Because again, I mean, what I really like about the shell music is that the mandolin's still there. Like it's a really cool. It could have been very easy for somebody to be like, "Here, why don't you just play guitar?" You know, <laughs> you know what I mean, and just be, uh, you know, I couldn't play guitar to save my <laughs> life. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I it's no interesting idea. to hear like the variety of instruments. Like it's not something you would expect to hear a mandolin in necessarily, which I think is beautiful, and that's the type of stuff that I, I love. That creativity of of the of the fact that the mandolin is in there, you know, and and there's keyboards and percussion and drums and and. And viol- I love it. I think it's great. And it just makes me happy that it's mixed well. You know, it's never just buried or just like, a, oh, there's mandolin if you listen hard enough. Like, it's there. <laughs> you know, it's it's very present. I think it's great. Man, it thanks. It, thanks so much. I mean, I think it was really a testament to, to Brent um, and Diana both because Brent, you know, was really in charge of production and his daughter Diana was in charge of publishing. And I think when they saw the band, like, they specifically said, like, hey, we, we want to protect this, you know, this thing that is, is very unique. Um, and and we we want to be able to keep that. And at that point, you know, we kind of grew up, all of us girls, like, we'd have these, dad would have these pep talks with us. And um, I think because we were homeschooled and we were, we were isolated in the sense that, like, we lived out in the country and there weren't really very many kids to play with, um, you know, so we really just kind of had each other. And we were, for, <laughs> I think probably for that reason, very uh, much in love with the Marx Brothers and the Beatles. Like that that idea of like four, you know, four people um, just doing cool things together, scampering around and all that. <laughs> right. We really loved. <laughs> Oh, that's great. And playing, you know, and playing music. So my dad used to give us these pep talks and he'd be like, you know, if you just learn how to get along someday, you could like be like the Beatles or the Marx Brothers and have your own band. And so, uh, you know, at that point, we really just listened to a lot of the 
Beatles and classic rock, you know, we love Supertramp and Yes and anything that was really bizarre and experimental, um, except for some reason Pink Floyd. Like that totally, we missed the train on that. I didn't get into that until I was in my 20s. Oh, no kidding. Um, and I, yeah, and I really appreciate it now, but I think it was really, you know, what the taste that my dad had was really what I was exposed the most to, and, and that was kind of how my taste developed, um, which didn't really have... It's so funny because my dad is a singer-songwriter and his career was like, he was a folk musician, but he like never listened to folk music. <laughs> and now here I am, like love folk music and like play it and and like love my dad's stuff. Like I, I used to listen to his records all the time when I when I was a kid too, you know, and, and I'd fall asleep listening to them because I just, he, you know, my dad was like, still is like the biggest rock star but when I was a kid you know I'd, I'd see him up at on stage at a coffee shop and it was just huge to me like I thought he was the most famous person on the planet um and you know I feel like now there's there's a part of me that is like I, I was raised to be like oh yeah well the Beatles are so cool and bands are so cool and now I'm like I actually just really like folk music and I feel like I'm more in my my dad's shoes than ever yeah which is huh. kind of funny that's awesome so how do you go, yeah. how do you, how do you write, you know, you're listening, well, I guess, you know, the Thiele's in there and stuff like that. Did you ever go through like a big bluegrass phase at all or were you, or did you kind of avoid that? You know, it's a funny thing. I can't even ex- explain it. Um, it doesn't seem natural. I haven't ever really had an interest in bluegrass music, strictly speaking. Like I love, I love Strength in Numbers. I love Nickel Creek, but I, there was a huge turning point for me. Um, and that was probably around 16 when I started to write music where I really loved the mandolin as like a, almost almost like a brush stroke and a painting you know like uh, there's a way John Paul Jones plays that I would say is very painterly um, and even oh my gosh oh, Levon Helm oh, and yeah. the band yeah. I like the way he plays the mandolin you know I, it just became I just saw something, I heard something different and I wanted to make that, I wanted to bring that to life. Um, but then, you know, my whole world kind of turned on its head when I heard playing Steve for the first time. that's been like that was that was in 2019 and I still haven't recovered like it seems like that's all I listen to now which is (laughs) that and like you know and Nick Nick Jones and Martin Carthy and um you know Pentangle and Silly Sisters like I just feel like I've found this this really cozy little hollow and it's hard for me to like venture out of it now I mean it's cool because now you're taking these I mean, what I think is cool about like the classic rock thing, and there's like there's there's something about that that f- songwriting form that a lot of those bands inform. But when you can take it and now and and do kind of some of the stuff you're doing, and 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 that stuff's still kind of rooted in there. Like you still know what good songs are, and I think sometimes yeah. that gets missed uh, 
I mean, sometimes the, the <laughs> I talked about this with somebody recently, but sometimes the songs in, in, in bluegrass and I love bluegrass, but sometimes it's just a vehicle for the, the next solo, <laughs> you know, right? <laughs> you know, oh my gosh. And I love bluegrass. And I'm not, but it is funny. Like sometimes you listen to some, some stuff you hear and you're like, oh boy, this is just literally so, you know, somebody can really rip it up, which is great. I love that just as much too. But if there weren't songs, you know, music would, would just would almost be meaningless, I think. It's so, isn't that so interesting? Like, I think uh, people come to music for so many different reasons. And I can say, like, I I feel like my reasons for coming to it and enjoying it uh, have changed drastically. Like, I can literally look at my, I guess you'll call it a career. I don't even know what to call it. Like, my experience feels a lot better to say. I look at my experience and say, you know, when I was 10, um, like we talked about earlier, I was really doing it for my dad and I, and I was really doing it to get attention. And, um, and as I developed proficiency, I started to get some joy out of, out of being able to create something beautiful. And I went through a change when I started writing songs where like, I, at that point, I, I always forget this, but I went through a huge Imogen Heap phase and she's the whole reason I even started singing. Oh, wow. Because I, yeah, I felt like her voice, I'd never heard anything like it and it, but it was soft and gentle and I've always been a quiet singer and, and I thought there just wasn't a place for that and somehow she made a place, you know, and, and, um, I thought like, oh, well maybe, maybe it is, maybe I could be a singer, you know, but, um. She also really, like, her music really was very emotional for me. Like, I would listen to it, and I felt something, and I was like, oh, I want to make I want to make music that makes me feel something, you know? So I, I went through that phase, and now I feel like I'm in the phase that we talked about at the beginning, where I'm like, you know, I just want to feel connected, like, to something bigger. I want to feel connected to a tradition, and um, I want to feel connected to people who are playing with me and, like, singing with me. And uh, I want to have a meal with them, you know, afterwards and all, all that business, you know, like I, I just want something more out of it than I did when I was set on like being a performer. I don't feel like a performer anymore at all. I feel like a, I don't even know. I guess I just more and more these days, I just feel like a person and it's a real good feeling. Like I don't think of think of myself as like, oh, I'm a mandolinist or oh, I'm a songwriter. You know, I think like, oh, I'm a person like. I can go wash windows, you know, I can go like cook up at a hunting lodge. I can, uh, you know, do all these other things. And, and that doesn't make me any, like, I don't feel like I'm less of like less worthy of love or friendship or anything like that. I feel like I'm, I'm just a person. And if, you know, i if I put out kindness and love, like usually it's, it's reciprocated and that's amazing. Like it's an amazing, it's amazing thing. Yeah, and you've got that. Speaking of that, you've got that Tuesday night live stream. Is it Tuesday night owls? Is that what you call it? Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, I started that over the pandemic, and it's just become a fun tradition now. Like I, I get to connect with a lot of people doing that. Yeah, that's awesome, and it's really cool. Uh, yeah, that's that. That was. It, there were so many people doing live streams that yours was the one that I always felt like I could come back to. Um, yours and then the Tuesday night Nashville live stream that Casey Campbell and David Greer and all those guys do those are is always quality <laughs> you know what I mean like sometimes it was just a dude oh. with a camera backwards and I'm like oh my gosh what is this guy? <laughs> I'm like what is going on with this guy it's 20 minutes tuning Man. looking for a capo <laughs> you know like you Dang know it. 
Yeah. So, and and then and also on your Instagram, which is so killer, you do the reels and. What was it like to have Chris Thiele respond? Uh, was it just, did he just respond? Was it, <laughs> whoa, or something along that line? Yeah, I, I like literally took a snapshot of that and sent it to my big sister because, you know, it was a a big moment. I, it's funny because I've met Chris like several times and uh, he, he like never remembers my name. Um, and I, you know, like I always, th- that used to like really bum me out because he's been such a big hero of mine. And then I thought about it and I was like, you know, that'd be so hard. Like you meet so many, you meet so many people and like so many different contexts um, that I got over that. But this was a big, like a huge deal to just like show my sisters like, hey, look, I think you might remember my name now. (laughs) I mean, to see something like that, like you're talking just, I mean, if if people like him or don't like him as far as like his playing style you cannot take away from the fact that the guy has he has broke the mold of what mandolin can be for for i mean he's taken it to a levels it's probably never seen and to get a, a statement like that from 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 Thiele is just like when i saw him like oh my gosh that's got to be the the greatest feeling you know to have a guy who can seemingly play anything be like whoa <laughs> Well, you know, I think what is, is I think probably it was more a comments of appreciation on the song Choice because I was doing a piece by Vason uh, and, and they're a remarkable band. And, um, you know, Punch Brothers has actually covered, they've covered some of their stuff. So I, I kind of like, I looked at it and I thought, oh, I think this is a, like a remark on the song Choice. And I, but I even almost appreciated that more. You know, because just going back to that feeling of connection, you know, like there's something really special about Basin and their and their compositions. And so I, I thought it was cool that that was even like being recognized. I don't know. But I man, I was chuffed like to not to put it lightly, but that definitely made my day. And, and you know, every time I met Chris, he's been so, so sweet. What was the tune again that you did? So it's it's 30 years jig. Um, I don't know how you pronounce it in, um, I don't know how how you actually pronounce it, but in English, it's 30 years jig. Well, I think he might have been commenting on the incredible performance of it, too. Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, my. Yeah. Let's well, talk, that's real sweet. Let's talk a little bit about how you've developed your, um, how you've developed your, your playing technique. Your cross-picking is incredible. Um, oh, thanks. Yeah. How did you, how did you work on that? What were some of the things that you worked on to get it so smooth and, and, um, and up to speed? Yeah, so funnily enough, what we were talking about earlier, learning that song, uh, Song for a Young Queen, there's so much cross-picking in there. And, um, and oh my gosh, I always forget to say this, but actually, so I think when I probably turned 16, my dad got me Chris Thiele's Essential Technique for Mandolin, the DVD. Yeah. That thing is amazing. Like, I had to watch it real slow. Like, I was constantly slowing it down so that I could do the different exercises and stuff on there and understand what he was talking about. But that 
DVD helped me so much. And so he goes over cross-picking technique um, and pick-stroke theory and all that. And and that really, the, I've, I after working with that DVD, I felt like mandolin music clicked, especially what especially what Chris was creating. You know, um, like it clicked because I understood pick-stroke theory better. Uh, so that I would say, yeah, probably learning that piece and, and having that DVD did it. That, um, oh my gosh, the, uh, is it when mandolin, mandolin's dream, is that the one that he plays at the very yeah. beginning? Of it? Oh, <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Unbelievable. He's, he's so, 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 so inventive. It's really thrilling. You know, let's talk a little bit about gear. You um you started on the Kentucky, but you don't play uh, the Kentucky. Well, you might still play the Kentucky, but you definitely don't play it as much any longer. Um, what what are some of your main mandolins? No, I'm a I'm an all Weber girl, except that I have just bought this uh, Neapolitan mandolin. Yeah, I saw the picture. Um, That's awesome. Oh, uh, it's such a cutie. I I love it. You know, I just like to have those. I've got a couple of what I call them my colorful instruments. Uh, you know, cause you know, you don't know when you might need that color. Like it's fun to have. Um, so I have that, but everything else I have is a, is a Weber. So I have two actually of their bear tooth. Cause when I, my dad, um, this, he, this was just, you know, so my dad, he's, he's great, but, um, he, he actually invested in a really nice mandolin like a couple years after I started. And that really encouraged me to play more because I just loved, I still love this mandolin, but it's a bare tooth. And um, I've had that since the beginning. And then a few years back, I, I found another one, you know, just in case something ever happened to this one. And, um, and just, you know, because I was using, I started using different tunings and things like that. Uh, so I have two of those. And then Bruce and, and Mary Weber, they have been like supporting me from the very beginning, which is really humbling uh, because like, you know, before anything was happening, before there was really any indication that anything would happen, like they were, they were supportive. And, um, you know, through an endorsement with them, I ended up with an octave mandolin, which is the Bitterroot. Oh, yeah. That's all mahogany. I love, 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 love that instrument so much. And then... Um, Bruce actually I don't even I don't know if, if this is true this is what he told me but we at the time we were we used to do a lot of NAM exhibitions uh, for a microphone company and um, I would always go and play the Weber booth and we made this you know we used to make a lot of music videos for Shell and we made a couple with this tiny toy piano and so I went to NAM one year and Bruce gave me this beautiful Sopranino mandolin it's an F style it's the only F style mandolin I have and um, he said, you know, I thought that because your sister had like a little baby piano, you needed a baby mandolin. So I made you this. And <laughs> I, I, I'm just it's like one of the most beautiful things that I own. And I still, you know, I wrote like a little piece on it for one of the Shell Christmas EPs. And it's called Children of the Circus is the piece. And, to you know, it's a duet between the baby mandolin and the baby piano. Um but I, I've I've got to compose some more on it because it's really really beautiful. But that's my, those are my little my little, that's my little menagerie of mandolins. Well, I've got I've got two more questions for you. I feel like I could talk to you for hours because it's just <laughs> you you come from a. It's really I love these conversations about mandolin, but I also love it from, you know, you just you have a little bit of a different background, and I think that's so cool because it really it really goes why I do this podcast is like you 
you sound unique in now talking to you and hearing these influences that you've had this it all paints this big picture of like oh man this is this is why she plays so cool and i think everybody's got these stories so this is this has been so fun oh man i've had a blast daniel thank you yeah yeah I thank know, you I, I, I feel like we've, you know, I was going to ask you what you're drinking. I have like a wee bit of whiskey here because I don't really drink beer. Oh, yeah. Do you really? I, you I, know. Yeah. I, I actually just right now I'm drinking water. Oh, uh, what? This is not called water. I Mandolin's know. Water, I can, you know Daniel. what? I will. What? I will. Um, <laughs> the minute we get done, I play at a place in Charleston. The second Saturday of every month here called Palmetto Brewing. And I'll give them free advertising because I think they're the oldest brewery in Charleston and their no beer is so good. And they're, I mean, they're just like, take, take what you want after the gig on top of, you know, giving you beer during Booyah. the gig. So I have, yeah, lots of Palmetto and they have a brand new IPA CHS for the initials for Charleston. And I've been they're They're cooling down and that's what I'm going to have the minute we get off this. Oh, that's so cool. Well, I mean, I appreciate keeping a clear head for this. What's the whiskey you're drinking, though? Oh, my gosh. Well, I'm not having much. Honestly, I I, ha- I had it out because I was like, well, it's mandolin and beer. Like, you know, I like to pretend like we're, we're sitting right there, like having a drink together, you know, but then I was like also having a bit of a tick in my throat and I didn't want to be okay. coughing through your podcast. So <laughs> I've just got a little bit of a little bit of bullet in here. Oh, nice. Oh, that's good stuff, though. Yeah, you know. I I don't know. I <laughs> I'm not a connoisseur. <laughs> but did you um did you ever have a favorite beer or are you just not a beer person? You know, I can't do gluten, so I oh, really Okay, well yeah, that'll and that'll I've, do and it I've right t- there. And I really did, you know, before I, I found out that I couldn't do gluten, I did try to like beer, but it just never happened. You know, and, and so um for some reason tequila and whiskey, though I really I I have such mixed feelings about, you know, like hard, hard alcohol, but I think I love that feeling of just like when everybody has a drink and, and the edge is taken off and you can connect a little better. I like it for that purpose. Yeah. The the whole social aspect of it is really interesting, especially like in music, like sitting around with a group of musicians and just, yeah. you know, having a couple drinks and just talking music and, and opening up and, you know, it's, I, it's, you know, and I, I, some people I understand, you know, they just can't, their bodies, they just can't drink alcohol because it how yeah. it affects them. But, um, you know, there, there is something about that social aspect of having a drink and talking music that is really, really cool. Yeah. It's, it's kind of ancient feeling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So then, so normally that would be my last question, but th- so then, <laughs> then what will make the last question now is I have a theory, um, that, uh, anybody can get better at mandolin if they just focus 10 minutes a day on something just make a point every day to pick up the mandolin and work on something focused and whatever it is you're working on if you focus on it for 10 minutes a day you're going to get better at it Hmm. and so i always would like to ask mandolin players if you had something to recommend somebody to work on or if you yourself were going to pick up a mandolin today for 10 minutes what would you work on or recommend man i feel like i'm always thinking about the distance uh, from my pick to the strings, like whether I'm going too high and too low when I'm picking. Like if I'm keeping my if I'm keeping my hand tight isn't the right word. I don't mean tight as in like muscles tight, 
but the movements like、uh, small, keeping smaller movement, like in my wrist when I'm playing, keeping my wrist loose.、Uh, you know, that's that's probably the thing I'm I focus the most on when I'm like practicing is trying to figure out how to like keep、uh, keep my pick strokes a little tighter. Yeah, is there like an exercise or a tune that you use when you're doing something like that, or is it just whatever tune you're working on? It's usually whatever I'm working on at that moment. That's great. You're going to be doing shortly a Kickstarter, and so if people want to know when that starts, where can everybody find you? Yeah, so、I'm, I I don't have a website or anything proper like that, but at the moment I'm probably most active on like Instagram and、mm-hmm. YouTube, and both of those are just Lady Moon Cries.、Um, and, and you also have a Patreon. Yes, and I do have a Patreon, and that's just Patreon slash Lady Moon. So perfect. So thank you so much for doing this. You can, I'll tag you and put all those links. They can find them at mandolinsabeer.com and also in the description of this podcast. I will support that Kickstarter. I recommend everyone else do it as well. Eva, thank you so much for taking the time this evening. Oh, Daniel, thank you for having me. This has been a, this has been a hoot. We'll have to do it in person sometime. For sure, for、I'd、sure. Th- me too. <laughs>